0: Hey guys, welcome back to the show and thank you so much for tuning in if it's your first time here. Hi, my name is Lauren. Let's just jump right into things. So first off, does racism kill? And I mean literally kill or at the very least have very negative health consequences for black people in America? The answer, at least according to one researcher, is yes. Yes, it does. Then we're going to be talking about how the UK apparently is getting more transphobic as time goes on, specifically in regard to how it reports on trans issues in the media. Then, if you watch the show consistently, you probably are already familiar with how useless the UN is, but we are going to be looking specifically about how the UN is useless when it comes to advancing women's rights. And then finally, because this is our last show before Christmas, Merry Christmas, by the way, uh, we're going to be looking at an article which alleges that the Virgin Mary perpetuates patriarchy and control of women's bodies in Western culture. This was news to me, but I don't know about you all, I just love learning about my religion from people who don't actually practice or know anything about my religion. It's just, it's a really good time, right? So, let's talk about racism. Now, I don't think racism is a good thing at all. I am not a racist i am an individualist and as someone who is half white and half chinese i would hate to think that someone would assume to know anything about me or would judge me based solely on my racial background that's there's so much more to me i would much rather be judged on my character my merit my skills my personal history and and all that stuff so that is the same approach that i try to take toward other people and you know the problem with anti-racism activism nowadays is that it's it's not just about combating racism, trying to promote equality and colorblindness and all of that. It's actually about needing people to acknowledge that white people are privileged and perhaps innately racist and that society is built to i guess oppress non-white people and that black and brown people uh, are able to determine what is and what is not racist without any words from white people and it's just it's an it's an entirely new ideology in and of itself that i don't think uh, has anything to do with actually defeating racism But, uh, you know, we've been seeing this type of thing for a while in the social sciences, the humanities and the like, but it's actually reached a point now where it's starting to seep into STEM. And I think this article we're going to be looking at is an exact an exact example of this. So this is from The Guardian, and it's it's a researcher who is writing this op-ed asserting that racism is so bad in the U.S. that it's actually having health consequences for Black people. She writes, I'm part of a research team that has been following more than 800 Black American families for almost 25 years. We found that people who had reported experiencing high levels of racial discrimination when they were young teenagers had significantly higher levels of depression in their 20s than those who hadn't. This elevated, depression, in turn, showed up in their blood samples, which revealed accelerated aging on a cellular level. Says, our research is not the first to show Black Americans live sicker lives and die younger than other racial or ethnic groups. The experience of constant and accumulating stress due to racism throughout an individual's lifetime can wear and tear down the body, literally getting under the skin to affect health. This idea that racism is so prevalent and so serious that it actually wears down on black people's mental and physical states uh you know this may be one of the first research groups focusing on this but in terms of like social justice rhetoric this is not a new idea we've kind of seen um you know seen this theory propped up by people like aoc especially when covid was happening and look okay look i'm not gonna say that racism does not exist in america because of, of course it does. There are individuals everywhere who are racist and as terrible as racism is, because individual humans may always be terrible, I don't think we're going to get rid of it completely ever. But I mean, to say that racism is so bad in the US, one of the most multicultural and diverse societies ever that black people actually... Are, are experiencing illness because of it. I think that's that's a big stretch, especially when we take into account the fact that there are a lot of other health indicators that Black Americans uh, do not score the same on as white Americans that could affect their overall health levels that have nothing to do with racism. And I'm talking about things like poverty levels, which of course affects what you eat uh, and as uh, your likelihood of exercising as well, obesity levels, things like that. Um, but Anyway, let's let's go into this a little bit more before I start complaining too much. It says, These findings highlight how stress from racism, particularly experienced early in life, can affect the mental and physical health disparities seen among Black Americans. As news stories of Black American women, men, and children being killed due to racial injustice persist, our research on the effects of racism continue to have significant implications. They say, We utilized a technique that examines how old a person is at a cellular level compared with their chronological age we found that some young people were older at a cellular level than would have been expected based on their chronological age racial discrimination accounted for much of this variation suggesting that such experiences were accelerating the aging process so part of me really wanted to read the whole study uh, so i could just pick it apart but the thing is you have to pay for it and like just morally I do not want to fund these people. Uh, But I did end up finding the abstract, which I think for our purposes is detailed enough. So that's what we're gonna be looking at. So this is an interesting study because it combines not just medical data, but also I would say, social science research. And if you're familiar with my background, you may know that when I was in college, I was actually a TA for a political science like quantitative political methodology class. And essentially what that means is that we were looking at how to make social science experiments as objective and quantifiable as possible, which is not always an easy task and it's it's something that I can you know, see there were problems with when it came to this study. Because when you look at doing an experiment or research regarding experiences of racism, obviously there are some caveats. The first one being that you have to rely on self-reported data, which is exactly what this study did, right? It says right here, longitudinal study of self-reported data over seven waves of data collection. You know, they also looked at reported discrimination between the ages of 10 to 15. So not only are we relying on people self-reporting what has happened to them, which is always going to be inaccurate to an extent, but we're also relying on them to self-report incidents of racism, which, I mean, as we've just discussed, is increasingly subjective. What is racist to one person is not racist to another, especially in the year 2020. I mean, we're talking about you know, a society that now believes it's racist when a you know an actress pla- uh, cast to play a certain role is not the correct skin color. Uh, you know, do I, do I trust 10 to 15 year olds to be able to accurately self-report on whether they have experienced racial discrimination? Frankly, no. No, I don't. So already, you know, these studies findings, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, I question them. You know, the second thing, that we have to look at when you when you talk about any research, whether that's social science or not, is is the issue of confounding factors or control variables, right? So it, it goes back to the whole saying of. Uh, correlation is not the same as causation, right? It's it's possible that two things uh, are actually affected by a third factor, which you're not controlling for. But you know, by not controlling for that, you might end up identifying a spurious relationship. An example of this would be for me to say that eating ice cream actually increases your likelihood of drowning, right? obviously that's not true but if you look at statistics it does show that the more people eat ice cream you know the more drownings happen but what's actually happening is that summer is the third factor that's affecting both of those things when summer comes people eat more ice cream people also drown more because they're swimming more but you know without acknowledging that third factor you're gonna end up with a with a spurious relationship between the ice cream and the drowning so the way that you kind of account for that is by considering as many other factors that might affect a relationship in your equation as possible. So when it comes to something like trying to determine the uh, effect of racial discrimination on health, for example, in addition to, I guess, trying to quantify racial discrimination somehow, I would also look at family structure, uh, geographical location, where exactly, exactly you live, um, other health habits, uh, family history of mental illness, all of these other things that might affect, you know, your your actual age that don't relate to you or your cellular age that don't relate to you being discriminated against if that makes sense. And uh, from looking at this study, it doesn't really look like they made an effort to do that. It says that they controlled for gender, alcohol consumption, and cigarette use. Those are nowhere near (laughs) enough control variables, if you ask me. You don't even account for things like, uh, I guess, health habits regarding diet and exercise. And so uh, pretty much all this study tells us is that people who reported I guess being victimized at a young age are also more likely to experience depression at an older age which does affect their physical health like that that in and of itself i'm sorry is meaningless and i'm not i'm not saying that maybe there isn't some sort of link there but what i'm saying is that research like this is nowhere near rigorous enough to back up the crazy, crazy statements that these researchers are making, uh, and it's and it's too bad because I feel like you know in times past it may have been the media's job to actually you know look into these findings and maybe poke holes or at least point to potential problems, but nowadays because stuff like this fits the narrative that is being pushed that you know you're right, Western society is racist, you know instead of trying to challenge uh, these findings or at least scrutinize them, we just have Art or publishers like The Guardian giving a platform for these pseudoscientists to spout whatever they want, pretty much unchallenged, which is way, way too bad. And actually, you know, kind of going against what this research says. I would say that it's not uh, not racism that is being deadly toward. Black Americans. It's actually the attempt of being too anti-racist. Uh, so this is actually not in the U.S., but I think a similar a similar principle applies in the U.K. London specifically, there is a huge knife crime problem. Right, a lot of stabbings happening in London. Unfortunately, uh, one of the one of the things that has been introduced in order to try and combat The knife crime problem is sort of like what they had in New York, a stop and search, where, you know, if if a police officer has reason to suspect you might have a weapon or be doing something illegal, he can stop you and search you. Uh, in, In the UK and in New York, I do believe that there's been some success with these programs and at least confiscating weapons, but... According, once again, to The Guardian, you have a problem because these policies might be racist. So listen to this. It says young black males in London were 19 times more likely to be stopped and searched than the general population, a study of official data shows. The tactic dogged by claims of racial profiling was concentrated in deprived areas and the success rate for searches turning up, something potentially unlawful, had fallen from two years ago, the research by University College London's Institute for Global City Policing found. Victor Melissa, a former lead for the met on stop and search said the study which revealed profiling was shredding confidence in britain's biggest force and you know as as far as the police is claimed they assert that it's not based on race it's actually something they they do where they target specific areas that are har- higher crime and they spend more resources monitoring those areas which just happen to be uh, disproportionately black and so that's why more black people are stopped but this it all goes it all goes back to the the same mentality where something is innately racist if it means that different outcomes are exhibited by different groups right it doesn't matter if if there's actually any racist intent behind it as long as it, it it equates with some sort of difference then boom you have racism and you know when it when it comes to criticisms of things like stop and frisk or stop and search as it seems to be called in the UK you know the intent might be I guess, to reduce racism against Black people. Maybe they'll feel better then and live longer, but it's like, these communities have crime problems. People are being stabbed. Maybe we focus less on being racist and more on objectively helping them, by getting knives and criminals off the street, right? It's like with with the research about cellular age, racism isn't good, sure, but maybe if we talk about things like why black poverty is so high, which is disproportionately because of single mothers. Maybe if we talk about things like why the black population is disproportionately obese, and things like behaviors like drinking and, and smoking, and maybe we could actually make some genuine progress equalizing health outcomes, but no, they would rather just blame everything on racism, so there you have it uh, okay let's continue though is the uk getting more transphobic a lot of you would probably say no of course not like every year there's progress made in how people's attitudes are toward LGBT people, but according to Pink News, quote, the UK media coverage of trans lives has become more troubling in the past decade. What does that mean? Well, that's coming up, but before we get to it, I want to say a thank you to our sponsor, Bloomsy Box. So, in the spirit of holiday sharing, here's something a lot of people don't know about me. I actually put a lot of effort into finding the right holiday gift for special people. It's something that I really care about. I want to give the perfect gift to the people I love, and if you're like me, you should consider flowers from Bloomsy Box for the holidays. You know about Bloomsy Box, right? You should. They are spectacular. Your loved ones will light up when their flowers arrive and they'll probably end up posting pics and brag to all of their friends. It's just such a special feeling to receive some of these flowers. And you can also send Bloomsy Box flowers to loved ones each month with a Bloomsy Box subscription. So, Bloomsy Box are simply better blooms. Seeing the look on someone's face when your Bloomsy Box flowers arrive is kind of magical. Bloomsy Box flowers are as spectacular as the story behind them, they are succinct sustainably grown on family farms around the world and what is really cool is when you place your order your flowers are hand picked and arranged at the farm just for you so it's kind of like sending a personal one-of-a-kind flower gift to someone they're delivered farm fresh straight to your door so they arrive weeks fresher and i love the incredible prices and huge selection of artisan designed arrangements there's no hidden fees no endless upsells and free shipping with a subscription so whether i'm sending a single holiday arrangement to someone special or a subscription for for that loved one to receive flowers each month, I only use Bloomsy Box. So I got you all a special discount. Go to bloomsybox.com and enter the code Lauren to get 15% off and free shipping. That is promo code Lauren for 15% off at b-l-o-o-m-s-y box.com so they you know the our show sent you. All right, so let's continue with what pink news has to say they say the UK's independent press standards organization and of course they spell organization with an s because they are British has published new research into coverage of transgender issues weeks after a study confirmed relentless anti-trans media coverage is causing increased depression and psychological distress in the trans people exposed to it ipso reported a dramatic rise in the number of articles about transgender people over the past 10 years which have generated Generated fierce debate about transgender matters. So, just looking at the story, I would have assumed that having more stories relating to trans people would be considered a good thing in the eyes of progressives and just LGBT activists or whatever, right? Because you're constantly hearing them complain about a lack of representation. Well, I mean, news stories talking about you, that is representation, but it seems like what what the problem they actually have is is that the coverage isn't flattering enough so it says some of the most contentious and sensitive issues handled by ipso relate to the reporting of transgender matters the ipso report found coverage generates wide and sometimes ferocious debate raising complex questions around balancing the public interest in reporting freely on important societal issues with the potential impact on vulnerable individuals ipso looked at twelve thousand articles published between january 10 and may 2019 so this is strange to me the way this is worded you know it it says coverage generates widespread debate and it raises questions around balancing public interest and reporting issues with the impact on vulnerable individuals like are you saying that news outlets shouldn't report on like trans debate issues because it might upset trans people because that's not an acceptable thing in my opinion like i don't care how anybody feels if if it's a matter of you know who is and is not allowed in you know public bathrooms and stuff that's something we should all be able to weigh in on it's like saying you know we should stop reporting on pedophiles being sentenced to go to jail because it might upset pedophiles i mean what kind of logic is what kind of logic is that It says, it found that there were three phases to coverage of trans people in the UK. At first, coverage was mostly disrespectful and mocking. Then there were human interest stories focused on trans celebrities like Caitlyn Jenner and Chelsea Manning. While in recent years, coverage has shifted to debating policy and laws that affect trans communities. This is a good thing. If you ask me, it should be less about trans individuals and more about the societal consequences of certain laws or policies. And what I want to point out is that these laws don't just affect trans communities. A lot of the times, they affect everybody. A great example of this is the issue of uh, trans women in sports. I mean, that's not just a question affecting trans women. It affects female athletes as well. If we also look at the whole question of, for example, whether children should be given hormone blockers, I mean, that affects families everywhere, right? I mean, every family is affected by a judge ruling that somewhere out there, uh, you know, a, a doctor can say your child is trans and if you refuse to give them the appropriate treatment for it, the child is taken away very, very strange way to frame this issue, if you ask me. They also write that trans-related stories used to be confined to broadsheet newspapers, while now more than half of articles about transgender people are to be found in tabloid newspapers. I think the reason why this is, why there's this shift from talking about, you know, trans issues in newspapers to now tabloids is because at least in the UK, uh, any of the, like, official newspapers or news outlets are very, very hard left. If you look at somewhere like uh, The Guardian or Independent, like, you are talking social justice progressive warriors to the max. So, I mean, no, if there's an issue that might paint the progressive agenda or LGBT LGBT agenda in not such a positive light, obviously, they're not going to talk about it versus somewhere like the Daily Mail, which, I mean, Not that they're perfect, they're definitely still a tabloid, but at least they're not afraid of the controversy that these issues, uh, you know, tend to cause. They continue, and in this coverage, there has been an increase in Debating complex questions relating to transgender matters in policy and legislation and potential impacts on wider society, IPSO said, with an accompanying increase in questioning tone of coverage. The research identified perceptions amongst some interview participants of increased hostility towards transgender individuals as issues are discussed and debated, which they viewed as potentially indicative of tangibly worsening standards, the report added. If you ask me, this isn't representative of... I guess, more hostility towards trans people, I think it is just an acknowledgement that a lot of these debates, you know, the sports debate, the bathroom debate, well, there are people on both sides of the issue. And in, in my opinion, neither of those, neither of those debates relate to whether trans people are, like, valid or should be accepted or not. It's just, is it worth fundamentally changing society and the way it operates in order to appease a small fraction of people, who aren't even all trans people, because a lot of trans people don't support the crazy stuff the LGBT lobby is pushing. For example, you know, there's this whole debate over pronouns and whether it should be illegal to uh, call someone by the wrong pronoun, whether that's hate speech, that obvi- that absolutely deserves a public debate. And, you know, I-, I don't care if one or two trans people are offended by the fact that papers would report on it, it needs to be done. Goodness. So Jane Faye, the chair of Transmedia Watch, Jane Faye is in all lowercase letters in this article. Because it's 2020, I don't know if that's just a typo or if it's like her name is dialized that way to be trendy. I don't know. But it says Jane Fay, the chair of Transmedia Watch, told Pink News that the IPSO report had failed to offer any meaningful analysis, though. So still not woke enough, IPSO. I'm sorry. What IPSO has failed to do is analyze the overall coverage. The picture that such an analysis would reveal, backed up by our own work, is that in the past decade, coverage has shifted to more respectful language, but a more troubling position where the media consider transness to be political. Okay, I'm sorry, but in a lot of these stories, it absolutely is a political, a, a political choice that, you know, these, these activists are making. Very rarely now is a story centered on should this person be able to call themselves whatever they want and dress however they like, and if they're an adult, undergo whatever procedures they wish no no one's really questioning that where where it starts to become political is when you have these activists saying all right it should be you know punishable by law to not call me this and instead call me that to say that i can't compete in in this category of sports and or, or to i've also seen people in the uk be let go for not having you know the right opinion regarding trans people so like yes all of those things are political not to mention there's also the debate in the uk of like what prison people who say they're trans should go to so i mean yes all of these things are political they have implications not just for trans people but for everyone and i'm sorry that these activists aren't satisfied with how the media have been reporting on it but I mean, I, I I don't see any other way around it. You can't just bury the issue because you're afraid people might be upset over it. Like, that's exactly why it needs to be reported about. Also says, in this scenario, the media consider transphobia to be almost wholly imagined. In other words, the mainstream media are now treating trans people as an issue and trans people as a problem. Whether the IPSO reports failure to address this is evidence of IPSO bias or lack of diligence, I cannot comment. Okay, trans people are not an issue. Uh, They're not a problem. The issue, the problem uh, is these, are these loudmouth activists who are frankly trying to change the way society operates, again, to satisfy a very small number of people. And the UK is one of the countries that I think has made the most efforts to accommodate trans people. And I mean, you recently had a ruling where a judge said that People who were, I think, under 16 could not take hormone blockers or could not consent to hormone blockers in the UK, which was a step in the, in the right direction. But overall, I mean, the UK is a pretty dang progressive, pretty dang left-wing place. So, uh, and their media is, is the same way. So, to say that even even in the UK, activists aren't happy with how things are going, I think it's, it goes to show these people will never be pleased. All right. Now, let's talk about the UN. It's no secret that I'm not a fan of the UN, and it's not necessarily that every little thing the UN does is terrible. The UN has done good things in the past, but it's just that anything good the UN does is not exclusive to the UN. You have a countless number of other NGOs and humanitarian groups who do the same, but without all the baggage the UN carries, right? The UN at its core is a bloated, corrupt bureaucracy uh, trying to impose globalist values on populations that do not elect them and to whom they're not accountable. So no, it's not a good idea in my opinion. Uh, and you know, lately, because I follow them on social media, I've been seeing a lot of, I'm gonna say propaganda from the UN women's group specifically. And so if we look at what role a, a body like the UN has to play in specifically women's rights, you would, you would think it would be something to do with maybe eliminating female genital mutilation, um, trying to increase access to education for girls the world over, combating sex and human trafficking, um, trying to end child marriages, things like that. And I'm not going to say that UN women doesn't touch those issues at all because they do, but what's strange to me is that UN women seem to spend a disproportionate amount of time focusing on third wave feminist issues, right? So instead of making our big push to be uh, getting girls equal access to education as boys, let's let's talk about the pay gap. You know, it, it's that type of thing. And I think it's it just goes to show how big of a waste of resources most parts of the UN are. I mean, we have work being done by UN women that everyday feminists does for much less. Uh, So we have this one article I wanted to go through. It's 10 ways you can help end violence against women, even during a pandemic. You might be thinking, Lauren, how can you take issue with UN women trying to end violence against women? What are you, pro-women violence? It's like, no. Okay, ending violence against women is a good thing. And If the UN were actually talking about ending things like honor killing or honor killings or like martial law or marital rape and things like that, I would be all for it. But the way that the UN women group thinks we're going to end violence against women is essentially by becoming intersectional feminists. And by that, I mean it's all useless stuff, or mostly. So the first thing they recommend we do in order to end violence against women is to listen and believe survivors. Okay, I'm not kidding. This is like straight out of the Me Too movement. It says, When a woman shares her story of violence, she takes the first step to breaking the cycle of abuse. It's on all of us to give her the safe space she needs to speak up and be heard. How about instead of... Just spouting off these meaningless western platitudes you actually name the biggest human rights abuses against women like i i don't know uh, the way women are treated in saudi arabia oh yeah you can't really because saudi arabia is now on the u.n human rights council huh How about that? Uh, So this is kind of a way, if you ask me, of like making it seem like you're all like for women's rights, while at the same time, uh, really only criticizing the way that women are treated in Western countries, not other places like Iran, which you know is also a member of the UN. So they also say, teach the next generation and learn from them. Okay, in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily sound bad, right? If if you want people to treat women and really everyone fairly it should start from when they're young teaching them that violence is not the answer and that people regardless of gender uh deserve to live peaceably but they say the examples we set for the younger generation shape the way they think about gender respect and human rights start conversations about gender roles early on and challenge the traditional features and characteristics assigned to men and women. Point out the stereotypes that children constantly encounter, whether in the media, on the street, or at school, and let them know that it's okay to be different. Encourage a culture of acceptance. Like, really, is challenging gender stereotypes the best way to combat violence against women? Are you gonna go... (laughs) to I don't know Indonesia and and look at a woman who's being caned for let's say adultery and say like no guys you just need to challenge gender stereotypes unbelievable so next is understand consent yeah I don't have a problem with consent uh but this this point really just buys into the whole feminist myth out there that people are raping by accident which is not a thing. It says, Freely given, enthusiastic consent is mandatory every time. Rather than listening for a no, make sure there is an active yes from all involved. Adopt enthusiastic consent in your life and talk about it. Phrases like she was asking for it or boys will be boys attempt to blur the lines around sexual consent, placing blame on victims and excusing perpetrators from the crimes they have committed. All right, if we look at somewhere like South Africa that has an unbelievably high level of reported rapes. Do you think, like, going to a literal rapist and just saying, like, hang on guys, consent needs to be active. It's not just that she's not saying no, she needs to actively be saying yes. Do you think, like, the actual rapists are gonna be like, oh, doy, thank you, UN women. I shall now stop my raping ways. Like, no. No, this is not helpful at all if we actually want to, you know, target the issue of rape worldwide. Let's start with uh, getting rid of things like child marriages, right? Marital rape. Let's actually have meaningful convictions for people who are uh, charged with rape. Like, none of, none of this stuff is actually going to do anything to advance women's rights. I'm sorry to tell, tell you all that. Uh, okay, this is the the best one by which I mean the most useless one, even by these standards, it says start a conversation. By this no, they don't mean raise awareness about things like female genital mutilation or Marital rape, honor killings, human trafficking. No, this is what this is what the UN Women Group want you to do. Show your solidarity with survivors and where you stand in the fight for women's rights. Get this by oranging your social media profile for the 16 days of active, activism. You can download banners for Facebook and Twitter here, and they provide a link. On Instagram, you can use UN Women's Face Filter to spread the word and encourage your community to do the same. Use hashtag orange the world. hashtag 16 days, and hashtag generation equality to start your own conversation. This is performance, hashtag activism, at its core. Like, start a conversation is really like, hashtag 16 days, is that really the best way to start a conversation? Wouldn't it be better to say like, hey guys, here are all of the countries where it is still legal for a man to rape his wife. or like, hey guys, here's how many women in our own country uh, were part of human trafficking this past year. Like, isn't that maybe a better way to start the conversation to actually illustrate the problem rather than just virtue signaling that you care about it? I don't know. If you asked me, I would have said yes. They also say stand against rape culture. Rape culture in some parts of the world is a very real thing. You've places in the world where rape is not considered a huge crime there are places in the world where it is excused uh you know where women are held accountable for rape rather than their rapists. it's a real thing and you know as a global organization I would hope that the UN understands that you know rape culture it's not just making sexist joke at the water coolers it actually means something but this this article that goes to show that no they, they don't understand that actually. So here's how they say to stand against rape culture. It says, every day we have the opportunity to examine our behaviors and beliefs for biases that permit rape culture to continue. Think about how you define masculinity and femininity and how your own biases and stereotypes influence you. This is not helpful, okay? Like, I get that whoever wrote this is probably located in, like, a New York office uh, where this qualifies as an actual conversation against rape culture, but the UN is a global organization. Okay, rape culture still means something substantial in some parts of the world. So let's, let's stop trying to pass off these third-wave feminist platitudes as any meaningful advice to further women's equality globally. Because it's not the same. I'm sorry, it's just, it's not the same. Uh, We have more more of these terrible, terrible points to go through, but before we do, I want to tell you all about Headspace. Life can be stressful even under normal circumstances, uh, never mind the craziness that 2020 has brought. So for the times that you need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, Headspace is here for you. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Headspace is the one and only of the meditation apps advancing the field of mind mindfulness, and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you if you need help falling asleep, which is the number one area where I need help managing stress and anxiety. Headspace has wind-down sessions for their members, which they all swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has monitoring morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. If you're someone who has tried meditation before and it hasn't really worked for you, and I'm definitely in that camp, Headspace is great because it's guided. You're not alone. It's not one of those uh, cases where you try to meditate, but you just end up thinking about all the stuff you have to do. Uh, You know, Headspace is really, really helpful in centering you and just quieting your mind so you can either move on with your day or, in my case, fall asleep more easily. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefit, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime and anywhere. So you deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to Headspace.com/Chen. That's Headspace.com/Chen. Uh, for a free one-month trial with access to headspace's full library of meditations for every situation this is the best deal offered right now and we're so happy to bring it to you so head to headspace.com chen today so they know that our show is the one that sent you and trust me you're gonna need help from headspace just winding down from hearing how outrageous all this un stuff is so another thing they ask you to do is to fund women's organizations donate to local organizations that empower women, amplify their voices, support survivors, and promote acceptance of all gender identities and sexualities. I mean, you know, obviously funding things like women's shelters is is a great thing to do, fund men's shelters as well, but I I love how they, like, they slip in there that you need to give money to organizations that promote acceptance of all gender identities and sexualities, so you can't You cannot be pro-women unless you're also uh, pro-non-binary people who are pansexual. Like, do do you think that people in the Middle East or parts of sub-Saharan Africa are, like, reading this and they're like, you know what? I have gone from someone who thinks it's okay to beat women to an intersectional feminist because of UN women and, and this article. Unbelievable. Last one that I want to go over is hold each other accountable. Which, I mean, like so many of these, in and of itself may not be bad advice, but this is their take on it. It says violence can take many forms, including sexual harassment in the workplace and in public spaces. Take a stand by calling it out when you see it catcalling, inappropriate sexual comments, and sexist sexist jokes are never okay. Create a safer environment for everyone by challenging your peers to reflect on their own behavior. All right, keep in mind, this is an article that's supposed to help us stand up to violence against women, and it pretty much ends by saying, sexist jokes aren't okay. Like, those, like, what? no you are completely conflating humor with actual violence how how did we get here as as like activists as people who care about women's safety no all right next let's look at this article that talks about the concept of equal pay and you know what from a global perspective, uh, the issue of equal pay isn't as ridiculous as it is in countries like the US, Canada, and the UK. Uh, globally, there are a lot of women who aren't educated and who don't just do not have the access to employment that men do. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not crazy to talk about equal pay in especially developing countries where women are, like, I mean, there are cultural and even political barriers holding them back from competing equally in the workplace to men. So, you know, if this was an article advocating for greater access to education and, uh, you know, more equality under the law, I would be all for it. And I would think that would be like a legitimate thing that the UN as, you know, a transnational group could do. But because this is the UN and they are useless intersectional globalists, That's not what this talks about. Instead, we're gonna talk about the pay gap like the Anita Sarkeesian way. Totally useless. All right. So, work of equal value, they say, can mean a job that is similar or the same, as well as a job that is not the same but is of equal value. The distinction is important because women's and men's work may involve different types of qualifications, skills, responsibilities, or working conditions, yet be of equal value and therefore merit equal pay. All of those things they listed, which might be different between men and women's work, uh, qualifications, skills, responsibilities, and working conditions, um, yeah, those are the things that exactly determine pay. So you can't say like, oh, well, you know, women's work, we may have fewer qualifications, it may be less skills, fewer responsibilities, and the working conditions are better, but but it's still equal value, so we should still get equal pay. Like, says says who? Why? But I mean, if, if that's the case and everything should have equal pay, then why would the jobs that do require more qualifications and more skills and have more responsibilities and worse working conditions, why would anyone work in them, right? If if you have the same pay, it just doesn't make sense, UN Women's Group. And then what's what really gets me is uh, the solution that this article offers for achieving equal pay. And it's not the things that I mentioned that would actually, like, structurally help women succeed in life on, on their own. It says, Equal Pay Expert King says that one of the most effective and quickest ways to narrow gender pay narrow gender pay gaps is through minimum living wages or wage floors and universal social protection. Because women are overrepresented in low paid work, minimum living wages and social protections would benefit them more dramatically. So pretty much, if you want to close the pay gap internationally, uh, UBI. Yeah, U- UBI, I suppose, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, social safety nets like welfare. Yeah, because heaven forbid we actually hold women accountable to the same standards as men and actually make them work for a living. No, it's better to just, like, implement socialism because, I don't know, women don't often want to become engineers and CEOs. Are you serious? It also says King states that widespread adoption of proactive pay equity laws, which require employers to regularly examine compensation practices, assess gender pay gaps, and take action to eliminate them would help also bridge the gap. Transparency within companies in criteria and decisions regarding pay can also help prevent gender bias. One of the things we've talked about on the show before is how, on average, women do negotiate less uh, when it comes to their pay than men do, and they also work fewer hours, which is, is quite a big determining factor of why, even at the same level and with the same qualifications, women and men might not be paid the same, because they're not working the same hours, and they're also uh, just not asking for the same pay. So again, instead of forcing women to, hey, you know what, work more, or, you know, not even have to work more, but just accept that if you don't work as much as someone else, you're not going to earn as much as them, or say, hey, you know what, women, I know that it's uncomfortable, especially since we tend to have higher levels of agreeableness, but if you want to earn more money, you have to negotiate, and you have to negotiate hard. No, now the, the social justice answer to this is just to say, Everyone at the same job must be paid the same regardless of those other third factors that might affect pay. We see this especially has taken root in the BBC where there have been like announcers that have complained about not getting the same pay female ones as male announcers or hosts who have like way huger audiences and are just way more high profile. But the final thing they say to do is ensuring workers' right to organize and bargain collectively is an important part of the solution. It is crucial that women be involved in employer and union leadership, enabling legislation that establishes comprehensive frameworks for gender equality, in the workplace. Again, this is just more about protecting women and treating them as incompetent. Oh, it's okay, lady, you can't bargain for yourself. We'll just, we'll form a union, so at least you're not responsible for, uh, I guess, getting a job that actually gives you the type of benefits that you want. We'll take care of it. And it's, it's frustrating, again, because there's so much to be done globally to, you know, to to further women in the workforce to ensure that everybody is carrying their weight for society. And I would love it if the UN could be a place where that conversation could happen. But I think the reason why they don't is they would upset too many of their, uh, their stakeholders, right? There are too many countries in the UN who frankly don't support this type of thing and they know that it would actually require changes in their own countries. So instead, they're just going to virtue signal to Western countries who it's okay to criticize. And, you know, third world countries, developing countries, they're not gonna pay any attention to this. So really it's just gonna be places like the US, Canada, the UK, and Australia who are beating themselves up for not being intersectionally feminist enough. Meanwhile, while UN Women does almost essentially nothing to actually help the women who need it the most. It's it's a big farce if you ask me and I am so upset that we are still funding it. All right. So, final story, let us talk about the virgin mary so um yeah christmas season is upon us which of course means that there were a ton of articles in left-leaning publications just criticizing different aspects of christmas uh, even though the authors seemingly had very little knowledge of of christianity and the holiday itself this is one such article so it says is there room for the virgin mary in a 21st century christmas i would say yes since the whole the whole christmas thing probably wouldn't have happened without her so she's she's kind of a central figure all right so this author says there's something very troubling about a culture that affirms celebrates and perpetuates the idea that virginity is a girl's most valuable attribute attribute and a measure of her moral character i agree that saying to a girl that your your virginity is the most valuable attribute you have that would be damaging um that would be toxic it'd be toxic to say to a boy or a girl that's not what christmas or the story of the Virgin Mary is about, though, and I think this author is just very confused <laughs> as to what Christmas means or what Mary symbolizes, and that becomes very, very clear early on in the article. So, it says, The image of the Virgin Mary so ubiquitous at this time of year represents female sexual purity as the ultimate measure of a woman's status and worth. What? what? It says, the Virgin Mary as the supreme exemplar of femininity, simultaneously elevating both virginity and motherhood, is so deeply embedded in Western culture that we've become the fish who don't realize we're living in a bowl. At a time of year when traditionally hundreds of primary schools rehearse their annual nativity plays with little girls cast as pregnant virgins and thousands of us send out seasonal cards featuring images of the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus, France continues to debate its proposed ban on virginity testing, targeting minority, Muslim, and some Roma communities. Virginity isn't just valued in Western culture, it's fetishized and it's wielded as a powerful but intensely damaging cultural weapon to control and police women's bodies. All right, so did you notice here how she talks about France, you know, uh, talking about banning virginity testing and then references Muslim communities? What? that That's, they don't, <laughs> what? That's not Western culture? That's not about Christmas? Uh, and you know, like Roma communities, I guess they're technically European and Christian, but they're not Western cultures, by and large? Uh, if you look at virginity testing, I would say it's least prominent in Christian countries. Uh, and I think this person also has a fundal, fundamental misunderstanding of why it is so f- emphasize that mary was a virgin it's not because virginity is really elevated uh, in christianity it's just that mary's birth was i guess a miracle because she was a virgin and and therefore you know there was was a sign that this was a son of god etc etc like it's not her being a virgin (laughs) does not mark her her purity it's it's to symbolize that this was a miracle birth and a miracle child and you know what christianity is is a religion where virginity is not the be-all end-all i would say abstinence is greatly preached if you are if you are not in, in a marriage relationship but you know, even even when it comes to like adultery or just fornication, the message in at least the New Testament is always, uh you know, stop your sin and then carry on living in Christ. So it's not that anyone who has committed uh, any type of sexual misstep is like forever tarnished. It's it's just that they should be redirected uh, to to live by Christ's teachings, which is not the same as saying if you're a virgin or sorry if you're not a virgin, then you're no good. And actually, Mary herself after she Gave birth to Jesus, she did get married and she had other children. So it's not like she lived her entire life as a virgin, but she was no less an important figure in Christ's mother after she, you know, had children with Joseph than she was before. So it's just, it's a very... It's a very misinformed take to look at the Virgin Mary and say, oh, yeah, these Christians are just idolizing virginity. Like, that's not it. It's, it's special because you can't usually get pregnant if you're a virgin. That's why they mention her virginity. It's weird that I need to explain this. Like, how, how does someone get to an age where they're actually like a writer and not, under, not understand the Christmas story? Very strange. And then she complains that the practice of virginity testing is a relatively rare but utterly horrifying invasion of a girl or a woman's body. I I don't disagree with that, especially since virginity testing is not scientifically accurate. But again, like it's not Christian nations uh, who who talk about the Virgin Mary that are on on mass doing this virginity testing. And just again, in, in Christianity, sex. People say that sex is frowned upon in Christianity, but it's totally not. It's just reserved for marriage. And it's actually, you know, a very special and important part of a Christian marriage. Uh, So this whole conflation of sex being evil in the eyes of Christianity, no that's not accurate. She writes, we've seen so many times in rape trials and judgments about women that the two separate issues of sexual experience and perceived virtue are presented as inextricably linked. A virgin defiled is a moral travesty, but an abused sex worker was asking for it. Okay, so I've not really heard this argument from anybody that, oh, that it's okay to rape a sex worker. It's definitely not. It's not okay to rape anybody. But I think the reason why someone's profession as a sex worker might come up in a trial like this is when it's a question of was the sex consensual or not. Um, And if you're someone who doesn't understand why that might be relevant to a rape case, then you're probably in the Me Too Believe All Women camp and probably not, not useful for me to talk to you about this, but it also says, Virgin Mary imagery reifies and celebrates this dubious connection between sexual status, something that's private and no one else's business, with being a person worthy of compassion and respect. Virginity takes on more than just the description of a person who's yet to have sex and becomes an indicator of a woman's moral integrity. Okay, again, it's not, it's not just that, like, Mary was an amazing person because of her virginity, it's that her virginity made this a miracle birth because to be pregnant while being a virgin i know progressives aren't aren't into biology nowadays but yeah that, that that's a pretty big deal that's why it's talked about a lot okay that's why it's kind of a It's a big part of the Christmas story. She says, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that the Virgin Mary is one of, if not the most, influential female cultural icons. Interesting, then, how this author still displays so little knowledge of her. What the Virgin Mary represents culturally matters for how we think about women and how we behave towards them. Religious iconography tells us what ideal femininity should look like and becomes a cultural reference point for what all women should strive to be. I'm pretty sure that no one holding up the Virgin Mary expects women the world over to conceive while being virgins. Like, that's, that's not a standard of femininity that I have, that I have heard. No, uh, I think even, even diehard Christians accept that virgin, pregnant, probably not gonna happen for people aside from Mary. She finishes with saying the cultural obsession with female virginity is more about a desire to take ownership of girls and women's bodies to control their sexual behavior. And this is the crux of the argument. Anytime I see people uh, complaining about like something to do with Mary, it's like, all right, clearly you wanna be able to do whatever you want, sexually sleep with whoever you want. And you know what? You can do that in the West. Uh, No one's gonna stone you. No one's gonna throw you off a building or anything like that. But what they're also trying to escape from is moral judgment and the idea that it should be actually celebrated and a good thing to sleep around and be the world's mattress. And it's like, no, I I don't think so. Actions will still have consequences. And even if the world around you um, loses sight of this objective virtue, studies have shown that promiscuity plays its own toll internally on women when it comes to things like mental health and the likelihood of your future relationships being stable and long term. So I mean, Merry Christmas. This was a a different conversation surrounding Christmas than you may have been expecting to have, but you know, unexpected news is, is always what I strive for on this show. That's pretty much it for now, and if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a happy one, but we'll see you next time. Bye.